Welcome to the Village Church Podcast. Thanks for stopping by and taking the time to listen. We've prayed that this podcast channel blesses and encourages the Village family. So lean in with an open heart, eager to grow, and enjoy the episode. Great. How was that amazing reading, hey? Uh, good to hear different voices, and that's what you obviously dealt with uh, last Sunday. Dave did the honors of that. He did tell me it was a little chaotic here with all the kids in, but he did his best to try and communicate and uh, preach God's Word, and so I'm going to do the same this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, you're more than welcome to open them, whether that's a paper Bible or more likely these days a, tel- a tablet Bible or a phone Bible. But uh, we've now in part six of our, in the book of James, uh, there's going to be eight parts to it. And we're now at the end of chapter four, just, just before the end of chapter four. And we're going to be reading from verses 13 of James four through to chapter five, verse 12. Okay. Are you ready? Now listen, <laughs> which means something important is about to follow. Hey. You who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Now, truth is, that sounds like a lot of people I know. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will. We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. Some translations say you boast in your pride. All such boasting is evil. Why is it evil? Because James is saying it's more about you and your accomplishments than it is about God. Anyone then who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So he ends that little part of what he wants to say with that amazing yet powerful truth. Anyone who then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Again, because, and often, as I said, referred to, the, let me try that again. It refers to the sin of omission because sin is not only doing the wrong thing, but sin is also doing or not doing what is right. eh? Got it? Sin of omission. And so this first section then that James speaks is written to believers. It's written to wealthy business owners in the church who knew what they should be doing with their finances, knew that they should be honoring God with it, but weren't. And so James is addressing, in many respects, a self-reliance or a self-confidence in these wealthy believers, a confidence in their ability to make money and then to use it as they see fit, to do with it as they want. That's what he's addressing. But the thing is, these believers had forgotten that everything they have comes from God. It doesn't come about by their own wisdom, their own abilities, their own skills. No, it comes from God. It's a gift from God. And in 1 Chronicles 29, 11 and 12, David's prayer is this, everything in heaven and earth is yours. Wealth and honor come from you. And that's the truth. 
And James is wanting to communicate that to these believers in the life of the church. But the other thing these believers had forgotten was the brevity of life. In other words, that life on this earth doesn't last forever. It's like a mist in the Waikato. There in the morning, gone by lunchtime. Hey, That's the analogy that James uses. And so these wealthy believers were living their lives and storing up their wealth as if they would be here on earth forever. Because for them, there was no thought of eternity or even of the eternal ramifications of their decisions made here on earth. No thought whatsoever. And no doubt James is is reminding them of Jesus' warnings about storing up riches for ourselves on earth rather than in heaven. It's the same thing he's saying. And so these believers needed to involve God in their plans. General plans, but also their financial plans. Or maybe more precisely to say they should have, should be basing their plans on what is God's will and on God's purposes for their lives. Because for the believer, can I say then, living then and living now, to leave God out of your plans is to live independently of God. And can I say that's a scary and even arrogant place to live. And then, of course, to boast about all that you've achieved and all that you've accomplished is even more flawed and is even more arrogant which is the word James uses here. And so James is reminding them, just as he's reminding us, that we have no control over our lives, no control over events, no control over the future. And to think we do equates to arrogance and to self-sufficiency. Now that's what James is speaking to believers. And I think in many ways, he's reminding them that wealth is a test. It's a test as to whether we will prove faithful and whether we'll be responsible with what God has given to us and what he's blessed us with. And these believers were in the throes of failing that test. And James comes quite strongly across to them. But then if we keep reading, it's like James now moves from speaking to believers, wealthy believers in the church, to now wealthy or rich oppressors outside of the church. In other words, unbelievers. And this is what he says here in chapter five, and we'll read the first six verses. And he starts again with these words, now listen. Not only because what's about to be said is important, but for these, for these people, it's beware. Beware. Be careful. Be warned. You rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. What was the misery? What is the misery? The misery of God's judgment. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. 
some very graphic analogy and descriptions here. Hey? You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. The NIV in the footnote says, or the day of feasting. Both are apparent here. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Now, some very strong words there, some strong language that he communicates to these rich oppressors. But the thing is, these, these, these people were not only failing the wealth of, or the test of wealth, but they were oppressing and abusing the poor as well. Either because they were poor or because they were Christians or maybe both. But whatever it is, they were oppressing them, taking advantage of them. And so for these people, James doesn't have an appeal like he had with the wealthy believers. No, in this case, he only has condemnation. And like an Old Testament prophet, he is announcing their imminent doom and the destruction that awaits them. And so what were these oppressors doing that would ultimately bring about God's judgment on them? Well, James brings four charges here. And the first one is, is that they hoarded their wealth. Verses two and three. So much so that it had rotted, he says. It had corroded. It had become moth-eaten. Interesting, the same analogy that Jesus uses, hey, in Matthew chapter six, when he's challenging, in this, in that case, believers who, who rather store up their treasures here on earth than in heaven. Because he knows what will happen. He tells us what will happen with treasure stored up in earth. It's the same as what James is saying here. And so the end result of their selfish hoarding was that others were going without. Because they wouldn't release it. They wouldn't share it. They wouldn't be a blessing with that which they had been blessed with. And so their crime was uncontrolled greed. It was a spirit of mammon that again resulted in the poor being neglected and being oppressed. And so that's the first charge he has against these believe, these unbelievers, these rich farmers. Secondly, they failed to pay their workers wages. And you can read that in verse four. And the saddest thing of all is that they could afford to do it, but they chose not to do it. They were dishonest, unscrupulous, rich farmers, taking advantage of those who couldn't speak up for themselves or even stand up for themselves. And you know, if there is one thing the Lord hates, according to scripture, it's fraudulent, dishonest scales. He hates it. But the good news in all of this is that God sees it. God sees, he hears the, pri- the cries of the oppressed and he will respond as the Lord 
Almighty, as the Lord of hosts, as the Lord of God's armies. He will respond and he will vindicate these workers in due course. The third charge we see here is that these wealthy oppressors lived in luxury and self-indulgence. Verse 5. And it's interesting, the Greek word for self-indulgence has the description of extravagance and wasteful opulence. In a sense where the rich get fatter and fatter at the expense of the poor. And so for them, each day was like a day of feasting, of them gorging to their heart's content with no thought of tomorrow. But with it comes a dire warning. The day of feasting is their day of slaughter, where God will judge them and set them apart to be slaughtered. Strong, strong words, eh? But it's exactly what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 12, 3, where he says, drag them off like sheep to be butchered, set them apart for the day of slaughter. And so these rich oppressors were on the brink of judgment. But here they were fattening themselves on the poor, unaware of their impending doom. Sad, eh? And then the fourth charge that James brings is that they had condemned and murdered innocent men. Other translations say righteous men, one and the same thing. Now, and you can see that in verse 6. Now, whether that was literal murder or whether that was lawsuits against the poor, we're not 100% sure because the word condemned has the speculation that the, the courts were involved in some of this. And so maybe it was that these rich oppressors were taking the poor to court to possibly gain their land or to gain their, their wages, keep their wages away from them, which ultimately might have caused them to starve to death or to die of disease. We don't know. Or it could be a combination of both, eh? Literal, physical murder, killing, or a killing, in inverted commas, as a sense, as a result of them being taken to court. And maybe it did result in their death. But whatever way it was, it was wrong. And God, and God through James, is challenging these people about this. It was appalling what they were doing. And especially when these impoverished believers weren't opposing the rich. Absolutely appalling. They were defenseless. But again, the good news in all of it is, is that God was on their side. He sees and he will vindicate them, whether in their lifetime or whether in the life to come, eternity, that he will vindicate them. Now, that may have been written to rich oppressors. I understand that. Those outside of the church. 
But can I also say, if we're not careful, and if we don't keep our hearts soft and our eyes on Jesus, you know what, we too can fall into something of these practices. And yes, maybe not just the same degree as James talks about you. And it could be even to a lesser degree, but it's still dishonoring God in four, in all four of those areas. And so again, you know, this letter may not have been written to us, but it is written for us. And as such, we need to take cognizance of what James is saying, even to those outside the church. Because Romans chapter 15 verse 4 tells us for everything that was written, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. And may I say to warn us so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope and hopefully not fall into something of these arrogant and deceitful practices. Now, James switches again. He goes back from verse 7 through to the end of the, of the chapter, which in many ways is his conclusion now. But he moves from or turns his attention from the oppressors now to the oppressed, speaking again to the believers in the church. And this is what he says here, and we'll read from verse 7 through to 12. And even in the midst of all they're going through, now something of the encouragement comes through. He's been very strong, both with the wealthy believers in the church, how they need to live their lives, how they need to honor God, not just with their lives, but with their finances. Don't just think that they can live life as they please, do whatever they want without ever consulting God, asking his perspective, maybe even his permission on some things. Because if he is Lord, then they need to act like he's Lord. Then he moves to these rich oppressors and he just speaks fire and brimstone to them. Hey? And I know how quiet it got in here when, he, when I was reading some of these things. But now he moves and he, and he begins to encourage these believers, these oppressors, those who are being oppressed. And he's now saying, hang in there. Don't give up. And this is what he says here. He says, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. So what does he mean by the Lord's coming? Well, the primary sense of the Lord's coming is Jesus' second return when he comes back. But the secondary meaning of the Lord's coming speaks of a spiritual intervention when God will step into the situation and bring about change, where he will rescue, where he will deliver, where there'll be an, his encountering and changing things. So that's in some ways what he means by the Lord's coming. Yes, it is future, but it also can be while they're living here on this earth. And he now gives three exhortations regarding patience. And he says, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring's rain, spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near whether that's nearing the return of Jesus or near because God's going to break through on their behalf. And he says, don't grumble against one another or you will be judged. 
the judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. And he ends it by saying, and the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. In spite of what you're going through, in spite of what's happening to you, just remember the Lord is compassionate. And he is a God who is full of mercy. Now, it's interesting to note that James had spoken about perseverance prior to this. Do you remember where? Week one, James chapter one, verse three and four, where he talks about how the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work. It must finish its work, so don't abort it. Don't look for a shortcut. Don't look for a way out. No, let it finish its course so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so now he picks up on that theme and he uses these three illustrations about patience and perseverance and our need for it. What are the three illustrations? Hopefully you picked them up as I read that passage. And the first one is the farmer. Now the thing about farming, and I'm no farmer, but when the farmer plants a crop, if he plants it today, he doesn't expect a return tomorrow. Huh? <laughs> Is that right? That's the bottom line. There is a waiting period. And sometimes that waiting can be long, huh? longer than the farmer would like. That's the reality. But James is say, saying, be like that farmer. Stand firm and wait for the Lord's deliverance. And it's not a passive waiting, but it's one of expectation. It's one of anticipation of what God can do and what he wants to do in the, in the farmer's life, in the person's life, in the oppressed person's life, how he wants to bring deliverance and how he wants to rescue them. And so when the fruit arrives for the farmer, when the breakthrough comes for those who are being oppressed, the farmer isn't surprised. Why? Because he's expecting it. He's anticipating it's coming. And that's how James says, those believers and we who under any form of suffering, difficulty or hardships need to view it like that. And the thing for the farmer is that if there is no rain, there is no crop, eh? there's no fruit, there's no harvest. And in the same way, if there's no trial, James is saying there is no blessing. And therefore, no maturity, no completeness. Back to James 1 verse 3. And that's why for the Christian, easier said than done, I understand it. But for the believer, we need to see the affliction we go through as an investment in our lives and not as a waste of time. We need to see it as an opportunity to grow and not a reason to complain. 
That's what James is getting at you. But of course, the day will come when God will come through for them. Hey? Be it a divine intervention or when Christ returns to set things right and take them home. But it will come. The second illustration or example he uses is the prophets. Those who spoke in the name of the Lord as his representatives, but sadly as a result of that were persecuted, and yet even in the persecution continued to persevere, continued to do what God had called them to do. And James highlights them as those who are a great example for us. The Greek word for persevered refers to long-suffering patience. <laughs> that puts like another spin on this word persevered. Long-suffering long patience. Let me ask you, who likes long-suffering patience? Who's good at that? I don't like it, nor am I good at it. But it is needed, eh? And Jeremiah, when he talks about the prophets being an example, there are plenty of examples, but Jeremiah is certainly one of those examples. And you just have a look, a cursory look at his life, and you see things like at on one occasion he, he was put into stocks. At another time he was thrown into prison. Other times he was lowered into a dungeon. Not very nice things. Yet in it all, he persisted. In it all, he persevered in his ministry without getting bitter or twisted or, or vindictive or any of those things. Amazing. Eh? And James is saying these men, Jeremiah along with many others, serve as examples of long-suffering patience when it comes to being oppressed and mistreated. You may be feeling oppressed this morning. And yes, that oppression may be different to what these Christians were going through, but oppressed nonetheless. Maybe you feeling mistreated by your boss, friend, whatever it is. This letter is relevant for you. What God was saying to those believers then, he's saying the same to you. Don't give up. Don't get bitter. Don't get vindictive. Don't take matters into your own hands. Trust God. Because God sees, God hears, God knows, and God will come through on your behalf. And then the third illustration is Job. And no doubt James would have been thinking or could have been thinking about Job when he said, blessed is the man who perseveres, there's that word, who perseveres under trial. Blessed is that man. James chapter 1 and verse 12. But notice here, James doesn't talk about Job's patience, <laughs> as many of us do. Huh? I'm sure you've heard the saying, that person has the patience of Job. Well, the truth is Job wasn't actually very patient. Just go and read the story of Job. He moaned quite a bit. He complained. But he did persevere. And that's why he's an outstanding example, not of patience, but of perseverance. 
in the most trying of situations. And the result of his perseverance, to use James's words here, what the Lord finally brought about was that God gave Job twice as much as he had before. But here's the thing, Job had to wait for God to act. He couldn't rush it, couldn't make it happen. He had to wait for God. And while he waited, he controlled his temperament, his tongue, his temper, and any of the other T's you can think of. He controlled them. How? By refusing to blame God for what he was going through or to slander his friends and in inverted commas in the same way they had slandered him. Great example, eh? And I want to say we'll miss out on the blessing of God if we try to justify ourselves in difficult situations or if we try and take matters into our own hands rather than leaving things in God's hands. When we leave things in God's hands and we trust God, that's when the blessing comes. And that's what Job, James is saying here. And so the point of all three illustrations is that God had not forgotten these Christians. And in their waiting, in their waiting for God to intervene and for God to rescue them, they were not to give up or to give up on God, but to keep being faithful and to keep persevering no matter what, no matter how dark it got, no matter how challenging, but to keep persevering because that brings breakthrough. And then Job closes this, this section with first Job, James. You knew what I was meaning, eh? In verse 12, when he says, above all, having heard all of this, being made aware of this, now above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. And he's not talking about cussing. He's talking about taking an oath. He says, all you need to say is a simple yes or no Otherwise, you will be condemned. That's an interesting verse that, like kind of just thrown in there. But you have to understand that most Greek letters would end with an oath certifying that the letter is true. That's how most, most Greek letters would end. But rather, instead, James is saying, and again, he's quoting Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5, Verse 33 to 37, he's arguing that Christians shouldn't have to take oaths to prove what they're saying is true. Because here's the thing, when you take an oath, when you preface your statement with, I promise you, so-and-so is going to go there or do this or do that, what it does is it divides your speech into two categories. Because if you say, I promise you, 
well, then that must be true. But if you don't say, I promise you, well, then maybe it's not true. (laughs) Not so. No, James is saying everything we say needs to be like an oath sworn before God as being true. Don't divide your speech into two categories. Just because I say, I promise you, or honestly, no, I better believe that. And if I don't use those words, well, then maybe I I don't have to believe that. No. This is what James is saying. Let everything you say be honest. Let it be truthful. Let that be a challenge to us. eh? Let our word be our word. Let our yes be our yes. Don't say, I promise you. Because the next time you don't say, I promise you, they're going to wonder, oh, is this really true? That's what James is talking about here. So what does that mean for us? Well, hopefully God's been challenging all of us this morning through what James had to say, both to wealthy believers, to rich unbelievers, as well as to those who are oppressed and being taken advantage of. Hopefully we've been able to hear what God is saying, either challenging us on something or our response to deal with it in maybe a different way to how we think we should deal with it. But if I had to summarize what I've shared this morning, I think four things stand out. Number one, Let's never exclude God from our plans. Whether they're future plans or financial plans. Somehow thinking that we can do it on our own. That we can manage without God. That we've got it all together. We've worked hard for what we've got. It's ours. It belongs to me. I can do with it as I please. It cannot be our hearts. Not if he is Lord. eh? If he is Lord of all. And if he's not Lord of all, the truth is he's not Lord at all. And so rather than a self-sufficiency, which leads to an arrogance, rather God's looking for us to have a God-sufficiency, a God-reliance, which leads to humility. The second thing we could take out of this this morning is that we need to live with eternity in our hearts rather than living for the now, eh? the temporal pursuits and pleasures of life. Now let's live with eternity in hearts. Let's make decisions that are based on something greater than just the now and something that is God-honoring. The third thing is let's learn patience, eh? And with it, perseverance in times of testing and hardships and sufferings and difficulties and pain, disappointments, whatever it may be. Let's learn what it means to persevere. To keep our heads up, our eyes on Jesus and our one foot before the other. And then the fourth thing is, let our yes be our yes. And let our no be our no in the way that we would speak honestly and truthfully to others.
That's a challenge, eh? But that's what God is saying this morning through this letter that we've read. How are you doing? Never known a hall to be so quiet. Challenging, absolutely. I'm the first to say I'm challenged. When I read this, as I've prepared this, I say, oh God, how easy it is for me to fall into some of this, to have a hard heart, to not be compassionate to those who are suffering. How easy it is without me even knowing it at times to to oppress others. How easy it is for me to blame you for things or to give up on the promises that you've spoken or the things that you've put in my heart because it's taking so long or life is just so tough and so difficult. How easy it is to say something but then not do it. When you tell someone, I'll pray for you, and then you forget about it. Not a good thing. Because if your word is your word, then if you say, yeah, I'll pray for you, and you don't do it, you've dishonored God in it. Because then your, your yes isn't your yes, and your no isn't your no. Or, hey, I'll send this to you, and then you don't do it. I know we forget. That can't be an excuse. Well, I'll do this, but it never gets done. This is what James is saying. All right, so let's stand. Let's pray. Maybe you've been challenged by all four of those things. Or maybe there's one that the Lord's put his finger on you this morning. The wonderful thing about God is he doesn't come heavy-handed. He doesn't come to oppress us or condemn us. He's not here to make us feel bad or guilty. But he comes with loving conviction. He comes with a reminder to us that this isn't for your best. I have something better for you. This what you're doing isn't helpful. But this is actually the way I want you to go. Lord, we want to take that this morning. And if there is one area that you are speaking to us, stirring up within us, reminding us of, then Lord, we want to embrace that. We don't want to be like those James talked about in the first or second week about who hear what you're saying, like the one who looks at himself in the mirror and then immediately goes away and forgets what he looks like because he does nothing with it. Lord, we want to respond to what it is that you are doing and what it is that you are saying. And if you're challenging us on something, then Lord, we want to make the adjustments. If you're reminding us afresh of of your best for us and of your will and your ways, then again, Lord, we, we want to embrace that. And we want to give our best to you. And so help us, Father. That even though this letter wasn't written to us directly, it was written for us. And we want to hear what you're saying. We don't want to miss anything, Lord. And so help us as we go away this week to 
to process, to analyze, to think. But more than that, Lord, to take responsibility for what we've heard and then go and do something about it. We ask for this in your wonderful name. Amen.